Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Okay, uh, last time we talked about Taxi Driver, and we're going to move right along into New York, New York. Uh, this film is an interesting um, look because it's... Marty's going to teach us a lot more about the things he did wrong rather than the things he did right, and I think that's valuable uh, so that hopefully we can learn from his mistakes so yeah, without further ado, let's get right into this. Um, New York, New York's the story of a singer played by Liza Minnelli and a saxophonist played by Bobby De Niro uh, who fall in love, but their creative drives uh, end up pulling their relationship apart. Marty approached this movie through his deep love of cinema. We've talked about how he was raised on movies, and and that's where that's where this movie came from. That's how he was able to relate to it personally. That's how that's how he really approached it, because basically it's an MGM musical in the same style of all the uh, Vincente Minnelli films, etc. Um, but it's it's Marty's take on an MGM musical, and Marty feels that he'd been doing this um, already up to this point. Main Streets came out of the gangster or crime genre. That was largely pushed by Warner Brothers, which actually was one of the reasons he was so pleased that Warner Brothers picked up that movie, so that it can forever go into the canon of a of Warner Brothers crime films. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Comes out of the um, sort of the female star vehicles, what the, what used to be called women's pictures. We don't really have those anymore, unfortunately. Um, and then Taxi Driver, they always refer to as kind of a gothic noir sort of a blend between uh, sort of a New York noir and a gothic horror film. So here, Marty takes the MGM musical and just puts his spin on it. And he really tried to replicate as much of that feel from those, from those great musicals from the 40s and 50s. Um, he really dissected Vincente Minnelli's style, um, which... You know, it's funny that Marty was so, you know, Marty loved Vincente Minnelli films, uh, films like American in Paris, Gigi, uh, Us, I think A Star is Born was his as well, and um, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, etc. And so I think the casting of Liza Minnelli was really, was not just because she was a great performer, but also probably in his own way, well, I don't I don't want to get into my opinion too much. I just think it's interesting that he that he cast Liza Minnelli because not only was she a great performer, but also the daughter of the man who inspired New York, New York, largely. So Marty really dissected Minnelli's style. See, Minnelli would would plan his coverage th- through the music. What I mean is he would you know track with the characters in one direction for like twelve bars or something like that, and then cut and move in another direction for another 12 bars or so. And that was something that that Marty really took from Minnelli and has stayed with him ever since. We'll get into that later. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, these were big Hollywood films that, that Marty was looking at and trying to model himself after. They were... Um, you know, big sweeping crane shots and all that kind of stuff. And so that that was something Marty tried to incorporate into this film as well, which, if you think about it, really wasn't something he'd had the chance to do. It, this is his second assignment film 
But his first one was a fairly, not a big budget Hollywood film. This is a massive undertaking, a massive production that he's doing. So it's the first time that he's really getting to play in this kind of classical Hollywood genre, which is funny because it was already start it, it was already on the way out that kind of classical hollywood look and feel and the studio system and all that stuff was on its way out in large part due to filmmakers like scorsese who were coming up but this was sort of marty's last chance at trying to hold on to some of it and put his name or or sort of sort of contribute to that genre so like i said manelli would break down his coverage rhythmically to the music and that's something that Marty really incorporated into his workflow. Because the thing about Marty is, is, is he's really known for, for how he uses music in his films. And what's funny is that they aren't, I mean, typically with a musical score, you shoot the movie and then someone scores the music to the images. Well, Marty kind of reverse engineers it and picks the music ahead of time. And with a, with a musical, that makes a lot of sense. But... But this is something that stuck with Marty. Actually, actually, it's been a part of Marty since the beginning, even going all the way back to uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door. The music was in the script. The music was there from the get-go. And what Marty started to do, with starting with this film, is blend that pre-planned music with the visuals so that the visuals were inspired by the music, not the other way around. In fact, what he said on the commentary track for New York, New York, is what he'll often do is listen to the music, and as he's listening to it, the visuals come to him, and the scene starts to play out in his head, and then he goes and, and, and storyboards it from there. Another thing that Marty wanted to do, again, in trying to recreate that classical MGM musical Technicolor look, was try to figure out how to reverse engineer that look, because the problem was the three-strip Technicolor that was used, or that used to be used, the primary film stock was gone. Everybody had moved, I think, to Kodak Eastman. In fact, I think Marty said, Marty's pretty sure that the last three-strip Technicolor film to be shot was The Godfather Part Two, ironically by his friend and fellow Italian-American filmmaker, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. So they had to figure out with, with what was then modern film stocks how to reverse engineer the Technicolor look. And that's where bringing in uh, his uh, this this wonderful production designer who had worked on a lot of these MGM musicals, um, Boris Levin, and bringing in a great young cinematographer, Laszlo Kovacs, um, really helped him figure out how to how to bring that vibrance and that color back to the screen that had been missing since Technicolor had been gone. You know, and that involved a lot of heavy makeup and almost these kind of painted on lipsticks for Liza, um, choosing very specific colors that the, that the film stock would respond to, etc. Doing a lot, a lot, a lot of tests, basically, in pre-production just to figure out how to create a very specific look that was no longer available in your average cinema. And the last thing that they started doing or excuse me, there's, there's, there's two more things. One is, compositionally, they tried to shoot the film like it was from the era because it's a, it's a story that takes place in the 40s. So there's a lot of shots that are, that are framed in what's called the American, which is basically, the American shot is basically just below the knees and up to get not quite a full body, and it's not a cowboy either, but it's 
but but basically from the knees up, and that's the American shot. And then they punch into about the elbows, etc., and try to really recreate what what would have been typical compositions from the '40s. And if you look at old films from the '40s and '50s, you see a lot of this, a lot of similar compositions being repeated um, because that's just how movies were filmed. And so. Marty and Laszlo Koufax really tried to replicate that as much as possible. And then the last thing that they tried to do but that kind of failed and they had to compromise on uh, was the aspect ratio. Marty wanted to shoot it in the old Academy, you know, 1.33 to 1 ratio, the old 4 by 3 standard format. And they started that way, but after watching the dailies, they realized that there were problems with it. One of the biggest problems was that Sound stages and everything else that had been built since the advent of widescreen had been designed for specifically for widescreen. And so they weren't really taking advantage of what they had, and it just wasn't really coming together and looking the way it should. So what they did was compromise. Instead of going to a typical 185 widescreen presentation, they went down to a 1.66 to 1, which is, as far as I can tell, the original widescreen format that was used largely by Paramount um, that basically was was just a cropped 4x3 image. So it would be cropped and then blown up to fill, to fill a, a theater projection. You know, you kind of crop the top and the bottom and then, and then expand it to, to fill the frame. And that's what films like Rear Window were shot in um, and, and many, many others. Uh, Shane is one of them. I, I can't remember if Dial In for Murder was shot that way or not. But, but that was before we figured out how to do widescreen optically, which is what we do now. Uh, basically, the lens is, is able to, to create the widescreen for us. I guess it wasn't the first widescreen, but it was one of the first widescreen techniques. And so what they did is they'd shoot it normal 185 to 1 and then crop the edges to bring in, bring it in a little bit, tighten it up. So it's not quite as square as the as the one three three to one, but it, it it still has something that kind of harkens back to the period, and whether the audience is ever going to notice or not is 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 unimportant. This was for Marty. So these are all the things that Marty was trying to replicate. But the thing is, he also brought his own style to this film too. As you probably recall by listening to some of the previous episodes, Marty had a lot of success with with what I'm going to call scripted improv. Basically, rehearse with the actors and give them a place to start and a place to end and let them improvise their way through it several times. And once you kind of hit on something that you like, then you transcribe that and that becomes the script. But on this one, he went full bore right into improv. Um, They didn't have as much rehearsal time. And so he just went right into it. We're just going to improvise all the dramatic scenes, which for Bobby was fine. Bobby De Niro is very used to that kind of a workflow, just improvising, just, you know, whatever happens on the set is what you get. Liza Minnelli was not used to that. Remember, she's not only the daughter of Vincente Minnelli, but also the daughter of Judy Garland. So she was raised in Hollywood in a very typical Hollywood fashion so that by the time she became a performer in her own right, she was used to a much more classical way of working. So it took Liza a while to come up to speed. But once she did, then they were really rolling. And she she became a legitimate contributor to what they were doing into their creative process. The problem with improv is getting everything to work. Because films 
and cinema are very different from many other mediums, many other performance mediums, because there's a lot more going on on the set. See, if you're, I mean, imagine you're in a giant soundstage and you're not shooting a big wide shot. You're just shooting, you know, a conversation with two people um, in one area, say say one quarter of that soundstage. Well, you're not going to light everything behind the camera or everything off frame. You're just going to light where you are, where the actors are. So if they start improvising and getting up and moving around and all of a sudden they're in an area where they're not lit... Well, that footage is now unusable, and you've wasted everyone's time on this improv. You know, on this improv that that at least up to a certain point you can you know you can only use some of it. And so there were times where literally Laszlo Kofax would have to stop the takes because they were way outside the lighting, or you could see, you know, <laughs> the crew or the or the light stands or whatever. The other issue is movies take. Many hands to make, typically. There's not a lot of movies that have been made at that level with that kind of money that have been made by very few people. You're talking minimum 100 people on set that all have to be paid for their time, all have to know where to show up, all have to be there on time. You know, there's a lot of logistics that go on. Um, and people have only brought typically what they were asked to bring. You don't you don't spend a lot of time and effort chasing down something that you don't think you're going to need. So, for example, here's another problem that the improv created. Um, there's a scene where Bobby proposes to Liza. And they, they go up to a justice of the peace and there's this door with uh, four little glass panes in it. And Bobby, without looking, goes to knock on the door and knocks on the window and breaks it. That was done in the improv, and Marty really liked that. thought that was a really good touch that they needed to have. So the problem was that wasn't intended, so they didn't have any extra doors or window panes with breakaway glass because you can't use one with real glass because then Bobby's going to cut his hand. So now they have to go track down, you know, 20 breakaway windows or 20 doors with breakaway glass in them so that Marty can keep doing his improvs and get this, this scene where it needs to be. That's the other problem with improv. It doesn't happen immediately. Sometimes it takes 10, 15, 20 takes to get to where you need to be. We're going to talk about that in a second. So the prop department has to go run out and get these breakaway windows, but you can't shoot anything while they're, while they're hunting down the props that are necessary for the scene. And the reason you can't shoot anything is because if you skip to the end of the scene... You've just complicated everything because you're totally off the cup improvising everything. You can't just skip to the end of the scene without knowing what happens to the characters two minutes before in the scene. They need to improvise their way to the end of the scene. They can't just skip to the end because then they have to really reverse engineer it. and It's going to make it even more complicated than it needs to be. So everybody's down. You have a massive production crew not doing anything. But being paid for their time, of course, but not doing anything while the prop department has to go get the breakaway glass. So finally they get it and they get it all put together. Finally, after 20 takes, and it's like 10 o'clock at night, and this is the other problem. Because they were down for a long time, they just keep pushing on through the day to get whatever they need to get. 
filmmaking is not a nine to five. You go until you're done. The problem with that is there's unions involved who will let you go until you're done, but you have to give the crew enough time, um, the the cast and the crew, enough time between the time you wrap and the time you start the next day. It's like 10 hours or something like that. You have to give them 10 hours from the... So if call was at 7 and it's 10 o'clock now, you've got to push call back another hour. Does that make sense? I did the math really quick. I think that's right. Anyway, so now it's 10 o'clock at night and they're not done. And they have a a real location that they're going to the next day that's only been booked for certain times in the day, etc. And Erwin Winkler, the producer, comes up to Marty and says, Marty, I think we got it. We, you know, can we move on? And Marty says, you know, on, on the last take, I think I saw a tear in Liza's eye. I think if we keep pushing her, we can actually get her to cry. So do you want me to stop or do you want me to get the tear? Winkler backed off at that moment because he realized what Marty was doing. Marty was crafting a performance very, very carefully and was using the improvs to get Liza to an emotional point where he needed her to be for the story, for the film. So Winkler backs off. Now, he'll admit that it totally screwed them for the next three days or something like that. But he learned something that day about directing, about performance, and about directors. And then the last thing is editing. I think this is something that if you don't understand filmmaking, it's really easy to overlook. Or if you haven't really spent a lot of time in an edit bay, it's easy to overlook. Films are not made on the set. I would even go so far to say is films aren't written in the script. And performances aren't necessarily crafted on the set either. Because it's really all about the editing at the end of the day. You can cut scenes, you can move them around, you can, you can mix and match takes and performances to create something that wasn't there on the set. And so when you're improvising, especially when you're improvising the Marty Scorsese way, you create some possible issues. Let me give you one example. Uh, the editor spent, one, spent just days on one part of one scene because every time... Bobby did that scene. The words were similar, but the performance was completely different. There was no continuity in his performance. And I don't mean physical continuity. I'm talking about emotional continuity, the way he delivered his lines. You know, if one guy delivers, so, so let's say Bobby delivers, this is just an example. I don't know that this is the case, but let's say Bobby delivers the lines in one take like he's drunk and in another take like he's totally detached. And then in a third take, like he's really angry. You can't mix and match those takes because there's going to be no emotional continuity in the character. The character is going to come off like three totally different people if you mix and match those takes. And the other thing was the pacing of it. If you do it kind of slowly blasé in one take and then you do a rapid fire in another, you can't do those either. You can't cut between those either because it, it totally changes the pacing of every single beat in the scene. And, and, and that's probably, probably not going to work either. So finally what the editor did was just let Bobby go as long as he could in one take and just let that basically be the cut of that part of the scene because that was the only thing he could do. Now, that being said, 
I feel like Liza Minnelli and Bobby De Niro put together some excellent performances in this film. And it's clear that there's a lot of things that worked in this movie. And so you can't necessarily say that all improvisation is a terrible idea and you should never do it for film. I'm just telling you that it's harder. That being said, Hitchcock, who was not at all a fan of improv on set, wanted everything clearly lined out before they even stepped foot on set. His style of filmmaking is difficult as well. To have a movie in your head before you get on the set and then to execute what is in your head on the set and execute what is in your head through the edit is incredibly difficult. The, the understanding of pacing, the understanding of visual storytelling is incredibly complex at that level if that's what you're trying to do. So what I'm telling you is we have two filmmakers who have two very different opposite views on this. And that's one of the reasons that I, that I really wanted to delve into this podcast because I think for cinema, you know, it's different for everybody. The thing is, filmmaking is hard. What you need to do is find your strengths and play to those. And find people around you who can either bolster your strengths or fill in your weaknesses. That's basically my lesson from this. And, you know, this movie didn't really do that well. Uh, it didn't do well fin- uh, commercially. It didn't do well critically. Um, it's, it's kind of slowly been rediscovered over the years and received more warmly. And now it's kind of a polarizing film where some people say it's one of Scorsese's best films and some people say it's really not that good. I'm kind of in the middle with it. I think there's some really good things in it. I'm not a huge fan of the film on the whole. I would love for you guys to watch it and tell me what you think. But Marty feels that the problem wasn't necessarily with the improvisations. The problem was with him as the director and not having enough control over the story. One of the things he constantly talks about with this film is they would improvise their way out of the scene and onto a totally different scene that they didn't have planned or a different set that they didn't have planned to have built. Meanwhile, his art, you know, meanwhile, his set construction team is building a set that he told them they needed and they do need. But that's not what the problem is. The improvs led them in a different direction. Now they have to figure out a way to work their, themselves back to where they're supposed to be. That's one of the reasons this movie's so long. And Scorsese feels that he didn't have enough. He didn't do enough of kind of trying to guide the improvs in a way that would have that, that may have worked better. And he feels that the scenes that that were that are the best are the ones that he had a chance to do at least some of what he had done in the past, which is work it out in rehearsals, put it on paper, and take it to the set. His quote, this is what he says about the film, and I believe this is from um, Scorsese on Scorsese, which is an excellent book. He says, it was an experimental situation, and in retrospect, I don't think we should have been given that free a hand. It was a mess, and it's a miracle that the film makes any kind of sense. At times, I think it became brilliant, but for the sake of the little brilliant pieces, we lost too much of the whole. And that's one of the other dangers of improv, is it's very easy to get stuck in the moment and not see the forest for the trees, not see the whole picture, which is what you should be doing as a director. But in, in my opinion, that's the job of a director. The job of the director is, is to be the gatekeeper for the movie 
and to make sure that every idea that is brought to him either helps or hurts the film and then make a decision based on that point. That's, that's my interpretation of what a director is. But that's what Marty says he didn't do. He says, for the sake of the little brilliant pieces, we lost too much of the whole. And that's probably the biggest failure of this film is that it sort of meanders its way through and by the end you know where you've, you know, you know what you've been through, but there's a lot you have to kind of dredge through to get there. However, what Marty and Bobby didn't realize was how this film was preparing them for their next project, and that's Raging Bull. And we're going to talk about that in two weeks in our next class session. We're going to follow that up by The King of Comedy and then The Color of Money. Um, now, in the meantime, uh, I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to encourage you to go like our social media pages. You can go find us on Facebook at uh, Hitchcock University, and then there's a Twitter, uh, Hitch underscore U, as in university. Um, remember to listen to us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's uh, iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, uh, wherever that is. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, I have been Taylor Bickle here at Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, I'll talk to you again in two weeks when we'll talk about um, Raging Bull. Thanks for listening. <laughs>